When we left off last week, the high priest Menelaus had gone to Antioch, where he got embroiled in a scheme to bribe one of the king's officials. Meanwhile, back at home, the people have discovered that golden vessels have been stolen from the temple. And although we know Menelaus stole some of them to use in his bribes, apparently his brother, Lysimachus, whom he left in charge, has stolen even more while he's been in charge during Menelaus's absence. Mobs begin to gather, so Lysimachus organizes a preemptive strike on the people. But the Jews fight back with stones and wood and even throw ashes into the eyes of the attacking soldiers. They're able to fend off the soldiers and kill Lysimachus. Then they send official charges to the king, accusing Menelaus as being responsible for the entire incident. Now remember that Menelaus is still up in Antioch, where he's in trouble with the king Antiochus IV Epiphanes for not paying his promised tribute and for getting mixed up in that bribery murder scheme. And now he's got those new charges on top of all that. His case is set to be heard by Antiochus IV when he comes down to Tyre for a political summit. Menelaus quickly sends a bribe to the governor of Qualesaria in Phoenicia, and the governor, whose name happens to be Ptolemy, makes plans to pull the king aside and talk him into acquitting Menelaus of all charges. You'll notice that throughout Maccabees, there are various men named Ptolemy. This is a particularly popular Egyptian name at this time. These men are not pharaohs, so don't be confused by their names. So Antiochus IV, with the influence of the governor, Ptolemy, acquits Menelaus. And that's bad news for the men who brought the charges against Menelaus. They are executed and everyone who has spoken out or fought against Menelaus or his brother Lysimachus are tracked down and executed. Menelaus remains in power and grows in wickedness. It is now 168 BCE. Antiochus IV makes his second invasion of Egypt, but withdraws under pressure from Rome. Rome definitely does not want a united Egypt and Seleucid Empire. This is that famous story about the Roman consul meeting Antiochus IV on the beach in Alexandria, Egypt, drawing a circle in the sand around him and telling him if he steps out of that circle without agreeing to withdraw from Egypt, he'll be at war with Rome. Antiochus has to back down and he is completely humiliated. Meanwhile, one of the former high priests, Jason, has been in exile in Amman. He hears a false rumor that Antiochus IV is dead. So he takes a thousand men and attacks Jerusalem in an effort to take the city and the high priesthood back from Menelaus. Jason is able to press the attack such that Menelaus has to take refuge in the citadel, a fortification built by the Seleucids on the south side of the temple during this time. It would have looked something like this. We'll hear 
a lot about this citadel. The Seleucids maintain a garrison here throughout the time of the Maccabees, and they use it to harass and control the citizens of Jerusalem. And this is where Menelaus holds up when Jason attacks. This is civil war, of course, between Jason and Menelaus. Jason is slaughtering his Jewish brethren in the attack. And this, to the writer of 2 Maccabees, is an unforgivable sin. Jason is finally beaten back and ends up having to flee once again across the Jordan River to Amman, where he is forced to run from city to city, hated and reviled as an executioner of his own people at least according to the author of 2 Maccabees. He dies unburied and unmourned. Antiochus IV, who is most definitely not dead, hears news of the fighting and believes Judah is in revolt. He leaves Egypt, where he's just been publicly humiliated, and he focuses his rage on Jerusalem. He and his soldiers massacre everyone in their path. According to 2 Maccabees 5.14, 180,000 people are killed in three days and 40,000 are sold into slavery. But even this bloodbath does not assuage Antiochus IV's anger. Guided by Menelaus, the high priest, he enters the holiest parts of the temple, taking all the holy vessels and sweeping away the offerings. It is interesting that the writer of 2 Maccabees feels a need to explain at this point why the Lord doesn't just strike Antiochus IV dead on the spot for going into the holy part of the temple. He explains that Antiochus IV does not understand that he's only getting away with this because the Lord is angry with his people temporarily. Otherwise, the Lord would have, quote, flogged, end quote, him, just as he had done to Heliodorus when God appeared on a rearing horse last week. But, the writer says, the Lord did not choose Israel because of the temple, but chose the temple for the sake of Israel. Therefore, the temple shares in the misfortunes that befall God's people and will also share in glory when the people are again reconciled to God. That is a very interesting insight, and it's quite consistent with how we've seen the temple represented throughout the Hebrew Bible. But we might question whether all this is befalling God's people because of their own wickedness or because of the wickedness of their leaders and rulers. In any case, Antiochus IV finally leaves with all his loot. I love the way the NRSVA puts it in 2 Maccabees 5.21. It says he leaves, quote, thinking in his arrogance that he could sail on the land and walk on the sea, end quote. Antiochus IV leaves various governors in charge in Palestine, Philip in Jerusalem, and Andronicus in Samaria, plus, of course, Menelaus, who is still high priest in Jerusalem. Antiochus IV sends an official to force the Jews to abandon their faith and worship the Greek pantheon. The Samaritan temple at Mount Gerasim is renamed 
Zeus, the friend of strangers. And on the 25th of Kislev, in mid-December of 168 BCE, Zerubbabel's temple at Jerusalem is renamed the Temple of Zeus. Inspectors are set up to enforce the laws of Hellenization, and at this time, the abomination of desolation, referred to by Daniel, is set up on the altar in the temple. This may be an idol of Antiochus IV Epiphanes himself, or it may be something else. The uh, historian Josephus says Antiochus himself built the idol on the altar and sacrificed a pig on it before he left for Antioch. Whatever it is, and whether it was done by Antiochus or his minions, it is so horrible that the writers of Maccabees cannot even bring themselves to describe it. Prostitutes are introduced into the temple precincts, and the altar is covered with abominable offerings prohibited under the law of Moses. People cannot keep the Sabbath or observe the prescribed festivals, nor even admit their Jews. They're forbidden from offering sacrifices and are ordered to defile the sanctuary and the priests. On the king's birthday, they're forced to participate in the Greek sacrifices. And during the festival of Dionysus, also known as Bacchus, god of the grape harvest, they are forced to wear wreaths of ivy and march in the procession. They have to build altars for the Greek idols and sacrifice swine and are prohibited from circumcising their sons. Any copies of the Torah are torn to pieces and burned and their owners are killed. This is ancient barbaric violence at its rawest. So if you are at all squeamish, you might need to turn your sound off until you see the thumbs up all clear slide. Women who are found to have circumcised their sons are driven through the city with their dead babies hanging from their necks, and then they are thrown off the top of the city walls. Okay, it's safe to turn your sound back on. Then Antiochus IV sends a chief tax collector with a large force behind him. He plunders and burns Jerusalem, taking women and children and seizing livestock. Many Jews living in Jerusalem flee to the countryside, of course. But others choose to be Hellenized. The writers of Maccabees call these Jews renegades. The Greek word for this is anamoi and literally means ones without law. Since I am telling this story within the context of the author, um, I will use the word renegade to refer to Jews who have chosen to be Hellenized and who are very, very often actively betraying their countrymen. But even in the face of all this, there are many, many Jews who stand firm in their faith and their customs. It is in this terrible time that we meet the family of a priest named Mattathias. This is a 3D map 
with the Dead Sea in the foreground. And you can see the Sea of Galilee up near the top. I want you to notice kind of the shape of the land. Here is Jerusalem, and here is the seaport of Joppa. It's called Tel Aviv nowadays. Mattathias and his five sons live in between Jerusalem and Joppa in a town called Modaim. His five sons are John Gaddy, Simon Thassi, Judas Maccabeus, Eliezer Avaron, and Jonathan Aphis. Their ancestral name is Hasmon, so they're often called the Hasmoneans. But the star of the show is the brother in the middle, Judas Maccabeus. You've probably guessed by now his name is where the word Maccabees comes from. His name means Judas the Hammer. The Maccabees means the hammers. Mattathias and all five of his sons are greatly distressed by the desecration of the temple and the altar and by the horrors befalling their people. And it is not long before the king's officers show up in Modain to force all the Jews to offer sacrifices to the Greek deities. At first, the king's men try reason. You, Mattathias, are a leader in Modain. You and your sons should come first as an example that all the other people will follow. Then you each will receive the special title of friend of the king, and you will be honored with gifts of silver and gold. We'll run across this title, friend of the king, frequently throughout Maccabees. It's a coveted honor that accords special status and protection within the Seleucid kingdom. As we will see, it only seems to last as long as that particular king is in power, and then it has to be re-bestowed or not by his successor. Nevertheless, it is a very big deal. It's kind of like being knighted. In the face of this offer, Mattathias says, never. But as he finishes speaking, another Jew comes forward to offer a sacrifice to the Greek deity on the altar of God. Mattathias kills him instantly and also kills the king's officer who is trying to force them to do these terrible things. Mattathias tears down the altar so it cannot be profaned and he shouts, whoever is for the law and the covenant, come with me. And Mattathias and his sons flee into the wilderness, leaving everything they own behind. There they are joined by others who bring their families, livestock, and some of their possessions. Of course, this migration does not go unnoticed by the authorities. One group of Jews is caught celebrating the Sabbath in a cave in the wilderness. Unable to defend themselves because it is the Sabbath, they are all burned to death, men, women, children, and livestock. As a result, Mattathias and those with him decree that Jews can and must fight on the Sabbath if attacked. It is here that the writer of 2 Maccabees really struggles. He cannot fathom 
why the Lord would not defend his people who are faithfully observing the Sabbath. He inserts a comment to the reader. Do not be depressed by this, dear reader, but realize that it, this is a punishment meant to discipline us, not to destroy us. In fact, it is a good thing that the Lord would punish us immediately for our infractions so that the punishment is mild. While other nations, he lets their sin build and build until when it reaches its full measure, he takes vengeance. But for us, the Lord always has mercy. Although he disciplines us, he never forsakes us. We might need to give this theology a closer look in our breakout sessions. There's some truth here, no doubt, but there's also something a little off, don't you think? Anyway, Mattathias and his followers go around the countryside engaging in guerrilla warfare, making lightning strikes at night, and circumcising any uncircumcised boys they find. It is terribly dangerous. The consequences of being captured are horrendous. I'm skipping the story of the scribe Eliezer, who is martyred during this time. If you want to read his story, you'll find it in 2 Maccabees chapter 6. But I am going to tell you the story of the mother and her seven sons. The story is very famous, but it is horrific. So if you are at all squeamish, you might want to turn your sound off until you see the thumbs up all clear slide. One day during this time of persecution, a mother and her seven sons are arrested and flogged because they refuse to eat pork. But the first son speaks up saying, we would rather die than commit such a transgression. Whereupon the king is enraged and orders more excruciating tortures. Now stop for a moment here and note that the king is being referred to as being personally present. This is not generally how these things work. So we are alerted that the story may have grown to epic proportions in the telling. Nevertheless, there is no question that horrible atrocities were indeed ordered and encouraged by Antiochus IV Epiphanes during this time. The king orders cauldrons heated. He commands the young man's tongue be cut out, his hands and feet cut off, and that he be scalped while his mother and brothers watch. Then, while he is still breathing, he is placed in the cauldron to roast to death. As the smell permeates the space, the mother and the remaining brothers encourage each other saying, God is watching over us. And just as Moses told us, he will have compassion on us. Then the second brother is brought forward. He is immediately scalped, but still he refuses to eat the pork and they kill him the same way they killed his brother. As he dies, he cries out to the king, you horrible wretch, you dispatch us from this present life, but God, the king of the entire universe will raise us up to everlasting life because we have died obeying his commands. 
Again, that is a remarkable speech for someone whose tongue has been cut out. So you see that the story is, is a story not meant to be taken literally. It is a story of contrast. It's a story of the fight between good and evil. It is meant to give the listeners courage, even in the most extreme circumstances, even unto death. The third brother is brought forward and he sticks his tongue out and puts his hands out saying, God gave these to me. And because of God's commands, I place no value in them for I know God will give them back to me again. This, this is the line out of this whole story that speaks to me personally. This is where my own faith lives. This I know to be real. This is where our true safety lives. God gave these to me. And because of God's commands, I place no value in them, for I know God will give them back to me again. The fourth son is also tortured, and as he nears death, he says, there is no choice but to die at the hands of mortals and to cling to the hope of resurrection. But you, for you, there will be no resurrection. Now, that's some interesting theology. The idea that the righteous will be resurrected, but the wicked will not. Here we see the Jews wrestling with their historical idea of Sheol, where once you're dead, you're simply dead. God has always, of course, had the power to raise the dead back to life. But in the Hebrew Bible, it was always a resurrection back to a temporal bodily life, to a body that would die again of natural causes eventually. The Hebrew Bible has several examples of this, such as when Elisha raised the Shunammite son in 2 Kings 4, and when Elijah raised the widow's son in 1 Kings 17. And the Psalms are full of references to God's power to do this and to save us from physical death. But the belief that God can raise people back to their current temporal life is not the same as the beliefs of the Persians and other cultures influencing Judaism in this intertestamental period. We first saw a reference to a wholesale afterlife sort of resurrection at the very end of Daniel, which was written at this time period. And that, as far as I can remember, is the only reference to a wholesale resurrection in the entire Hebrew Bible. Job makes a single reference saying that he knows that even if he himself dies, he will see his Redeemer in the flesh in the last day. But that's it. Nevertheless, this leaves the door open for the Jews to develop a theology around resurrection in the last day. And they have powerful motivations for doing so. If you don't believe in resurrection or life after death, then justice can only be served in this present life. We saw the writers of the Hebrew Bible really wrestle with the idea that God will punish the wicked and reward the good 
in this life. It simply wasn't happening that way. And they kind of got around that by saying, well, and, and, or your descendants, you know, um, and um, God will wipe out an evil man's descendants. That's kind of how they got around that. Um, But now the Jews are living in a culture that believes in a life after death. And that opens up whole new vistas of possibility for how justice could occur. It is here we see the origins of the debate that will later divide the New Testament Sadducees who do not believe in in a resurrection and the Pharisees who do. When the fourth son dies, the fifth son stares directly at the king and says, you have authority among mortals to do as you please. But do not think that God has forsaken us. Go on, do your worst and see how God will torture you and your descendants. So this then is the writer's view of what happens to the wicked. The sixth son is next to be tortured. And as he dies, he says, understand this. We are suffering for our own sins against God. Otherwise, you could not do these things. You will be punished for fighting against God. So you can see all, it's like, this is like a microcosm of all the theological wrestling and wrangling the Jews have been doing for centuries over justice, over what is called, uh, the fancy word for this is theodicy, how God could bring justice. So we're down to the very last son and mother and the mother. Throughout all this time, the mother has encouraged her sons during their torture and death. The writer, being a product of this strongly patriarchal society, attributes her courage to God, quote, reinforcing her womanly reasoning with a man's courage, end quote. Sheesh, women can be courageous in their own right, mister. By this time, the king is having second thoughts. He urges the last and youngest son to renounce his faith and promises him riches and friendship and a great job if he will only eat the pork. But the boy will not listen. And so the king begs the mother to persuade her last remaining son to save his own life. After much urging from the king, the mother finally agrees. She draws near to her son and whispers in his ear, I beg you, my child, to know that God calls all things into being. Do not fear this butcher, but die bravely so that by God's mercy, I will get you back along with all your brothers. And so the boy cries out to the king, what are you waiting for? I will never obey your command. I only obey the commands of God. We are suffering for our own sins, but do not think that you will escape the hand of God. God is only angry with us for a little while to discipline us, but we will be reconciled. You 
you wretch, you are defiled beyond all other humans. You will not escape the judgment of God Almighty who sees all. My brothers suffered briefly, but have now drunk of the ever-flowing life. You, you will be punished. I give up my life and my body, just as my brothers have done. May God have mercy on our nation soon, and may God bring you to your knees. The king is enraged by the boy's reproach and tortures him even more than the others. And last of all, the mother is put to death. Okie dokie, it's safe to turn your sound back on. What awful atrocities. The Jews feel helpless in the face of such terrible cruelty. Today, in our breakout sessions, we'll enter into the wrestling arena with them. We'll ask the question, where is God? All right, turn on your microphones. And um, let's see, looks like we've got enough people we can stay together to talk if you'd like. Um, that is always fun. So get out your study guides and um, take a look. So the, the, the world of the Jews has been turned upside down and shaken. There are no more tribes, only scattered communities of disparate family clusters. And the powers of the world continue to clash over their heads. Their promised land is trampled and abused and governed by foreigners. But Zerubbabel's temple still stands in Jerusalem. Sacrifices are still made. But the priesthood has become corrupt. The office of high priest goes to the highest bidder, changing hands at the whim of the Seleucid king. No longer is the high priest a descendant of Aaron. And yet, the Jews cling to their heritage and their God. And without even prophets to guide them, they are left to make sense of a world in which God seems to be absent. God was true to his word and worked on the heart of the Persian king long ago to allow the Jews to return to their homeland and rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. But for 300 years since, there has been no king. That's as long as the United States has existed, folks. Okay, that's how long we're talking about. There's been no king, there's been no Messiah, and no deliverance from the hands of their abusers. So I had a couple of questions. How did we see the Jews? try to explain this in the lesson. What were the different explanations beginning to emerge for why God did not show up to protect them from Antiochus IV? I did not say they were, they were, it was, they were being disciplined and, and the punishment was only temporary. Disciplined, temporary. Yeah, it makes me wonder how much, um, you know, as opposed to previous times before the exile, the Babylonian exile, the, the Jews would 
sort of veer to the worship of the gods around them. But after coming back from exile, there seems to have been for a large percentage of the Jews, this, this realization that bad things happen when you do that. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and so, like you said, they're struggling with, okay, so how then do we build our theology in such a way that it is worth the, the torture and the death and the suffering that we're going to endure by not caving and worshiping other gods. Um, and so this idea of, yeah, you know, there will be suffering and death, but it's temporary, like Woody said, um, probably provided a certain amount of comfort. Right, right. Renee, did you have a comment? Yeah, I think they had to be pretty strong in their faith to come back from exile, still believing. Um, so maybe not strong, but they were very sure of it. And I think that's why they started trying to figure out if God's not here, what's he doing? And, and so those people were different than the normal, you know, the other Jews that assimilated. Right. Right, right. And it's although it is interesting that for 300 years, without a judge or a king or a prophet, that they so many of them stayed true. Yeah, I mean, they had a few prophets for like you know, uh, uh, about a, another 150 years of that time, but it's been 150 years since you know, since they've had even the last prophet. I mean, it just seems like God has just gone, you know, that's a long time for God to be gone in, in your perception of God. And, and um, yeah. And so like their historical view was, I mean, they started out kind of feeling like believing that God was going to what, reward the righteous in this life and punish the wicked in this life right some of them note that down reward the wicked reward the righteous in this life and punish the wicked and then they kind of modified that right mm -hmm. do you remember the modification yeah, that, that that there would be reward in the afterlife. Well, I think they took one step in that you would you might die, but the but reward the punishment would go to what pardon? Their descendants would be wiped out. Right. So the reward or punishment would be enjoyed or or conveyed on um your descendants. And so that was that was kind of the interim step. And we saw that a lot. Remember in the Hebrew Bible where they began talking about things being visited to the fourth generation. Remember that? Mm -hmm. Okay. And, and that is them try, trying to make sense of all this stuff. We saw that that's not what God does. And Ezekiel was very clear that that is God is not going to visit the sins of the fathers on the descendants. It doesn't work that way. <laughs> and we saw that that doesn't work that way. But we also saw that being embedded, woven in to 
the Hebrew understanding early on, right? Now, in, in addition to, um, to, I think, probably general cultural um, view of the importance of descendants, do you think that's one reason why there are these stories of all of the children being killed is that cuts off that hope of the person that blessing will pass down from generation to generation. If all the succeeding generations are eliminated, where's the justice of God? Exactly. And that's why it was such a huge, big deal in the Hebrew Bible that you have children. That's why we had the Leverett law, where if a man dies childless, the brother marries the widow. That's why, and they have children and so on and so forth. That's why we have redeemer kinsmen. That's why, because you must continue that line at all costs or the whole idea of justice falls apart from that worldview, all right? And that's, you know, and that's why the promise to Abraham that he would have descendants as numerous in the scars and the stars in the sky, that's why that is such a big deal. Um, and that's also why whenever, you know, the, the worst thing that could happen to somebody, the worst curse was to wipe out his descendants from the face of the earth, right? That's why the Lord cursed the Amalekites with that back when they attached the Hebrew stragglers coming out of, out of the Exodus, coming out of Egypt. And we see lots of examples um, of that being done from a theological point of view because of somebody's wickedness. See that being done by kings who just don't want anybody, you know, to, to some, some the other king's descendants to come and take their power. So that both things are happening, the power mongering of the kings, but also there's this theological threat. Super interesting. And so now we've gotten so many hundreds of years into not, not having sacrifices, not having someone reminding us of, of Torah, not, not knowing anything really about it. Remember how Ezra had to reteach everybody. All right. So we've, we're bringing a lot of baggage with us coming from exile, coming back. And now, how, how did justice change? You see all of these threads in the Maccabees. They actually, the writers kind of say all of these things at different times in the text. It's like they can't decide on which one it is. Uh, <laughs> which is great. I love these transition texts. That's why they're so important to us. So what got added now? I think Mar Marlene, you just said it a minute ago. Yeah, the, the, the blessing comes after death for those that remain righteous and the punishment. Initially, it sounds like the punishment was you won't be resurrected where the just and the followers of, of God will be resurrected. Exactly. That is such a great point. I'm glad you noticed that. Did you hear any eternal hellfire and damnation in this in this view? No, no you did not. <laughs> All right. 
we're still evolving on that part. So in essence, I guess you would say that, that the, the wicked would remain in Sheol. And is this, is this an, I know we're jumping ahead to New Testament, but is this where, when Jesus talks about the poor man, Lazarus and the rich man, that this kind of theology was at play where the poor man was elevated to the bosom of Abraham and the rich man was in Sheol. Correct. So the, the, the word Sheol in the New Testament, the Greek word is Hades. Yeah. Same, same concept there. So that's very interesting. And when, when, did, when did Sheol, didn't, wasn't Sheol originally just the place where you went when you were dead? Yeah. But, but then at some point it became a place of torture, a bad place. Yeah, and so we haven't got there yet. So this is beginning, these seeds are beginning to be sown, all right? And um, I, I almost hate to say these words. But the truth is, that came from us Christians. We, we took Jesus' words out of context and created a theology of them. So when we get to Jesus' words, we'll study that part. But we're the ones that invented that part. The whole idea of sort of heaven and hell? No, there's, there's always in the ancient cultures, in these Greek, Persians, Zoroastrianism, all of these you've got an idea of an underworld, you know, and a, and a better place, (laughs) you know, sometimes they have a heaven, sometimes they don't, it depends on which culture you're looking at. Um, Sometimes there's a, a a place of like, like I pointed out where purgatory kind of came in during this period, kind of a temporary straighten you out place. And, you know, and then you have, can go on um, to, to a paradise or, Whatever. So there's always been some concept of that in the ancient world. All right. Not necessarily in in he for the Hebrews. You know, God for the Hebrews, God dwelled in heaven and God dwelled with them physically on earth. Um, and when you were dead, you were dead. Um but but um so we didn't invent heaven and hell. We invented the fiery torment part. Um, there's, we invented the eternal torment part. There's like one or maybe two verses in Revelation, which is an apocalypse, for goodness sake, you know, which you all now know how to look at an apocalypse. Um, that has this whole second death, late, late, you know, like a fire, eternal damnation and torture kind of thing. And when we get there, we're going to find out some interesting things about that. But, but our church fathers in the 
early centuries of Christianity um, in the, from 300, 400, 500, you know, as we move forward from that period, um, after the death of those who knew the um, apostles and, and knew the disciples and, uh, or knew the first generation kind of, you know, after those deaths, then people, people started building these theologies. And um, I'm afraid that has been our contribution to the world. And I don't think it's been very helpful. Well, that completely changes the understanding of salvation that, that Paul talks about and things, because now for many, many, many denominations, salvation means saving you from eternal conscious torment in hell. We Not, might need to rethink that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, you, you see salvation being mentioned in the New Testament, but it's not that. Right. Which it makes sense why so many people are so adamant about holding on to their truth and their belief because there's such a price of eternal damnation. So they're willing to change laws. They're willing to persecute and, and be... And just to those in minority groups or children or widows, whatever, because their hell belief is, I am saving you from eternal health. And it, it you know, it leads to this purging to a, to genocidal activity, to torture and terrible things. And I, and just think about this: that whole teaching about eternal damnation and hell is based on fear. God is love. And love casts out fear. Love is the antithesis of fear. God is the antithesis of fear. The Holy Spirit would never teach you something based on fear. Never. Awing God, fear of the Lord. You know, we've gone through all that terminology, being which means being humble and knowing God is God and you're not God. That's a different thing. That's not the kind of fear we're talking about in terms of hellfire and damnation, you know? And 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 we'll get to where Jesus talks about, you know. Make sure that you're fearing the right things. Make sure you're fearing God and not the world. It makes a difference in what choices you're going to make. Okay. Yeah, it's two yeah. definitions of fear. It's totally different definitions of fear. Yes. It's just, you can sense the difference. Now this is, this is slightly shifting to a different thought but as we were going through the story today I kept thinking about the holocaust and the atrocities that we have heard of that the Nazis and collaborators imposed on the Jews during the holocaust and it just resonates so strongly with this whole period of 
torture and imprisonment and attempt at eradication that happened under Antiochus IV. Um, this, this period was as big as that. Yeah, that's what it feels like in the, in the telling. Um, yes, absolutely. Here, would you say this is the same kind of thing that was happening in the early church when they were being persecuted and you had all those martyrs? I mean, I would think that early on in the church, if this kind of activity was going on, that, and, and that they had the story of the Maccabees, I mean, that would kind of solidify some of this thinking in the early church. Yeah, so if I'm understanding you right, you're talking about the period after the New Testament ends and the persecution of Christians begins. Yes. And this is in the period between, you know, 70 AD and the 300 or so AD common era, CE is really how you're supposed to refer to it, common era, when when Christianity beca becomes the, the, the religion of the nation, of the empire under Constantine. So in that interim, in, interim 200 years, the Christians were persecuted severely, like the, Maccabe the Jews of the time of the Maccabees were. And yes, I think that's very perceptive, Julie, that, that they would have had, they had those stories during that time period and would have been encouraged by them. And right? That's what I think. Um, and also, you know, from coming from a Catholic perspective, I mean, this story is in the liturgy uh, and, and, and it's, I mean, we revisit it like every year. Sometimes it gets preached on, sometimes it doesn't. But the main message is that you die for your faith. And, and that is such a Catholic thing that you, I mean, the saints, the martyrs and the saints, I mean, they are just like the cornerstone of the Catholic faith mm -hmm. or the Catholic expression of the faith. Right. There are deep roots there. Mm -hmm. You know, I think it's, I think it's really a tragedy that most of us Protestants were never exposed to the Apocrypha. I do too. Absolutely. Shame on Martin Luther for cutting it out. I mean, I, I abs it's like he didn't trust the, the preachers to explain to the people that, you know, these are stories, folks, you know, and here's what the deal is. It, it's almost as if Luther was trying to sanitize the Bible down to something that, you know, was more easily explained. You didn't have, I don't know. I don't know. He, you know, and he, and he hung his hat on the language and which I just think is a really weak link. I wouldn't want to hang my coat on that. So. Yeah, I think, I think understanding what was happening historically and how the belief of the Jews was evolving during that intertestamental period helps explain a lot of the debates that were happening during Jesus's time and during the years of the early church. And without that historical context, we lose a lot of understanding of what was going on. Yes, and that opens the door 
for people to take that New Testament text and make it say things it did not say, that it was not at all what would have been understood within by the people who were hearing it. Well, I, I wonder too how much of it was purposely left out with the intention of people relying on the power and the authority rather than their knowledge and their understanding of all these texts, you know? So it was easier to possibly, I'm wondering if cutting it out and people not really studying it and making their own belief. So let's just cut it out and tell you what you should believe. I don't know. It's, you know, that's always, um, and, and a possibility as to motivation, Donna is saying kind of the same thing. She says, I hate to sound jaded, but if Maccabees type stories, uh, if you leave them in there, you might have a hard time getting converts if you're telling them they have to die for their beliefs, <laughs> which cracks me up. And she's agreeing, you know, with Erica saying, you know, you leave it out so you don't have to explain so much. And, and you guys have hung in here for this whole time. And, and you can see that to actually understand the New Testament and who Jesus was and what Jesus meant requires all this time and all this work that we've done. I mean, sure, you can get sound bites on Sunday and you're really only getting sound bites in Sunday school. But to to honestly understand this, you, like you said, you have, you need to know what's going on in the world. Yeah, it, it makes me wonder if, you know, since Martin Luther was the one who came up with this whole concept of sola scriptura, you know, only the scripture. Yeah, he fixes it like it wants it and then says only this version. Yeah, but he also, you know, was an educator and might have had this, this, um, prejudice about the ability of the common person to truly understand the context and be able to discern like some of these books in the Apocrypha that might have been taken literally by common people. Um, and so he just decided he was going to do some severe editing so that they would get the right stuff when they only follow the Bible and not the church leaders. That's what it's so he still was imposing, you know, this layer of, you know, common people can't really understand, but well, he, would, he would have been afraid that they, as you just said, that they would take it too literally. <clears throat> Which is one of the problems we have today in many situations. <laughs> he might've been right about that. But I also yeah. want to point out, as Julie pointed out, that Luther was a product of the church. There was only one ch Christian church up to that time. He's the one that forked the road, okay? So we were all Catholics <laughs> for the, yeah. up until 1500. Um, and there was only one church. It was the Catholic church. And, that, and people did not read unless they had been educated. And that was just a small number of people. And, and, the, um, and the people, the, the priests were educated and were responsible for interpreting the scripture 
to the faithful, but they were also responsible for interpreting the church tradition to the faithful, which tradition was just like with the Jews. I think we talked about the Talmud, didn't we? Um, we've done that already, right? I get confused, but I think I told you all about the Talmud last week and how the Jews brought in their oral tradition, right? And, and it became part of their canon. Well, the Catholics did exactly the same thing. Our oral stories are part of who we are. They're part of our culture, all right? And the Catholics did exactly that same thing. So the tra Catholic tradition came to bear as much weight as scripture um, within that church. And, and things were told in picture stories, kind of like, like Jesus did. You know, you've got the, and thus the cathedrals and the, and the awe-inspiring vestments and the smells and the bells, as we accuse the Episcopals of. Um, and and uh, all these things were meant to draw people into an understanding of the awesomeness of God and to bind them to the church. And that starts out as kind of a holy mission that you see reflected back in the, it's it's a reflection of what in the hebrew bible talk, talking about you know love the lord your god with all your heart there is only one god okay don't don't veer off to these others the catholic church was trying to do that same thing i have to say the catholic church um kind of lost its way after it started to become come a real power um more of a um, legal, what do I want to say? Well, all right. Part of him, it, it became an arm of the empire. Right. And, and, and I think that um, from what I, my understanding of Catholic history is that during this time period up to Martin Luther, there was really, really bad teaching of priests and priests then didn't weren't really educated well right. and they absorbed things whatever poor teaching they had and their main job then after a while was to collect taxes yeah for the church <laughs> and the, so for the so the church could continue to yes survive and uh, that's exactly what happens today people are taught not uh, Renee we can't hear you people are people you don't you're muted what what were you gonna say um didn't the catholic church at that time become more of a political yes entity than a they were king they became kingmakers at that point mm -hmm. and that so was, was the complete downfall of the catholic church I mean, so, nothing again, I'm not speaking against the Catholic yeah. Church now, but I'm talking in this, in that time. That period. time. And also they didn't want the common people to be able to read the Bible because then the common people could find out, oh, guys aren't being truthful here. Well, yeah, you could see how it was colored. And that is what's happening today <laughs> in our churches, not Catholic and non-Catholic, Catholic and Protestant, Catholic and whatever. Uh, at people, people um are fed 
the story from their teacher and take it without being equipped to validate or invalidate that story. And so we end up having generations of pastors who honestly believe they're preaching the truth. So back to this question of, of literalism, and, and as you just said, it all comes down to what the preachers tell the, the people, uh, particularly up until like 1500, uh, when there was very little reading of the Bible by the, by the people. What I would think that the priests were not that well educated, and so they themselves would tend to take biblical uh, uh, passages literally, and that's what they would pass on to the people. Is that is that right? Of course. I mean, you've got the entire spectrum of humanity here. You've got priests who are wise and priests who are not. You've got priests who are educated and priests who are not. You've got priests who are manipulative agents of the government, and you have a few a few who are not. Um, uh, and 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 during that time, we won't do a class, you know, on forever and ever and ever on on this this part, but. But during the time when the, the Catholic Church became um, kingmakers, agents of empire at the very highest level, the popes had armies. There were dueling popes. It was just a horrific mess. Um, that is when the monasteries became important. The monasteries and the convents, the people who understood that God was not in the political power, renounced the political power and founded monasteries and convents across the world. And of course this started, I mean, way back, you know, before we, we, we this start, you know, if we're, by the time of Constantine, this was starting as the Romans spread this, this, the, the, as this, um, happened it, it wasn't like sudden all of a sudden people started doing monasteries but there was always there was this thread that became so important the and it was to christianity those monks and those nuns carried the flame of christianity forward to us and many of them many of even those monasteries ended up you know, becoming powerful in themselves and not doing as well. But as a rule, that's where you find Christian wisdom and the real, the reality of Christianity passed down to us. What do you mean by the reality of Christianity? I mean, the reality of Christianity as being a humble religion, not a tool of empire, not a king-making religion, not about money, not about human power. I keep going back to this idea of literalism. I mean, I would like to think that from the early days of Christianity, there were at least a few people who would say, wait a minute, you can't really take that passage literally. What it really means is this, is that were there those people or was the sure, bulk of it? absolutely. And and many of them got burned at the stake, you know. 
I mean, the, after after um, the apostles died and and the and and we had the the writings of Paul and the others who came after him, the Christian Church went through a period of a couple of hundred years where where we tried to sort out what it meant to be Christian. And everybody, and they had council after council, and all the leaders, all the scholars would come together from all around the Mediterranean, and they'd meet at one place or another, and they would decide amongst them. They would, it would be like a law court almost. You know, some guy would stand up and give his theory, and then the other guy who opposed him would stand up and give his theory, and they would decide which theory they they thought was truth and which was heresy. So and there and and that would get written down. And so we have these writings of what does it mean to be Christian? And those writings are those summaries, the minutes of the meeting, <laughs> you know, the summaries, the outcomes of the meeting are named after the place they had the meeting. That's why we have a Nicene Creed, because they had one of those councils at Nicaea. There were many of them during that time frame. Um, so there, and there are many um, church fathers who were um, uh, branded as heretics. Uh, and so, you know, you can get, if you want, I can, you know, give you references to places where you can read about the history of Christianity. But then there was all kind of political subterfuge going on even during that. There were people that would tell somebody, somebody who of the opposing side would get told that the meeting was in a different place. You know, stuff like that was was going on. So it was it's quite an um, an it's it would be funny if it wasn't so sad. Isn't it a shame that we see history repeating itself today in so many modern churches where power and money and influence dictates how the people in the pews are taught and led to believe. Um, we're, we're doing the same thing again that, that um, Martin Luther rebelled against. Yeah, and church. I definitely see the church as a whole in America allying itself with empire right oh yeah yeah and seeing themselves as kingmakers and 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 seeking power seeking political power yes and the corruption the the financial and moral corruption of many of the leaders who then turn around and if someone dares to stand up to them and speak truth they're called heretics essentially right and try to get and try to try to stamp them out right yeah wash rinse rinse repeat yeah um i was gonna say lean forward so we can hear you i was gonna say um you have said christianity is a humble religion not about money not about human power and then you named a couple of other things could you repeat them (laughs) probably not what did i say kingmakers was one of them okay yeah and i think something that has struck when you said that I was so grateful because it convicts me to not do the very thing that I don't like other Christians to do because it's I think sometimes in our nature to just think I'm right you're wrong but that puts me in that spirit of power rather than humility so 
it is such a good reminder of my job is to be a humble Christian, but I feel like humility is almost perceived as weakness in our faith. And so they, I, I'm wondering if some people, instead of really just sitting and trusting God and being humble to growing and learning, even when potentially all that we've been taught is not what's God intended for us to believe or to learn. Um, crap, I just lost my train of thought. But anyway, the, the point is, I, I'm grateful you you highlighted the role of Christianity to be humble, because I think that we can all ask the Lord to help us be that, especially in the climate that we're living in now. Absolutely. And I want to remind you of something that we talked about back when we uh, did Moses, which actually you got, you girls probably weren't in it yet. But um, when when we did Moses, Moses um, was named as the most humble man in scripture. And, and yet Moses was this huge leader with huge power. Um, and um, the way that we reconcile that is realizing that our, that there is no power that we can actually wield except God's power. And we don't wield God's power. God wields God's power. <laughs> we get out of the way. We, we act as a conduit, all right? And, and so our job, and that's what Moses did. Moses was self-effacing. He got out of the way. He simply spoke spoke the words that he understood from God and that, and he did the things he understood God telling him to do, but he never, except for that one, one time, he never mistook God's power for his power. And we must stand there because that is where we can do the most good. That's where we have the most leverage in this world. We cannot live other people's lives. We cannot make their choices, but boy, by golly, we can stand next to them and speak truth and it will pierce their hearts. We can stand next to them and shine a light that shows a completely different way to look at things. And we only do that by our preparation before the Lord, by our efforts at education, by our, our monastic work of being humbled before the Lord and living out that humility, that humble Christianity, where it's not about us, that all we can do is speak from the well of wisdom the Lord has grown within us and pray that whatever we speak, that what lands is what the Lord wants to land and that whatever is chaff be burned in transmission. But we have real, very real power that way. 
That's why Jesus said, you will go on to do greater things than I do. Because I will be there and God will be there. We, God wants to be with God's people. If that's let what we ask, to do. Let me ask you this. I mean, this is a serious question. Um, how does one humbly speak truth without sounding like you're saying, I'm right and you're wrong? That's a great question. I've, I've seen some people that I would consider to be truly humble um, who have said, um, you know, I'm not speaking for God, but this is what I have come to understand. Um, and it sort of puts like, you know, I could be wrong but this is a different perspective than perhaps you have heard before. That's a technique. Mm -hmm. I like that. I like that. This is what I have come to understand. Mm -hmm. I like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think that, that to a great degree, what actually matters in that situation is how you are viewing the person. Are you viewing it as you are right and they are wrong? That might be the problem. <laughs> okay. Um, if perhaps the view needs to be, I understand this to be true. What I see happening here is not good donna's saying a lot of good stuff there in the chat let's look at some oh. so donna has said um like now everyone proclaiming to be the ones that are doing what god wants and everybody else is evil um, this is the op this is not the same thing as name it and claim it. You know, this is not saying, you know, if you're if you're doing well, then God is blessing you, you know. And if you're doing wrong, it's like, what are you doing wrong? We we left that long time baggage a long time ago in this study. The long hard long haul, she says, is relationship. Um, that they have to trust you and are open to not feeling attacked or that you are preaching to them. No one has time or takes time anymore to develop that kind of community. So to do real work, heart work with people, that is absolutely true. You meet people where they are, figure out what is that next step for them in, of perception and simply say that. And just know that God will send somebody else for the, the next step, all right? that it's not all on you to fix people. Um, but you also, uh, Donna brings up a good point, and that is that it, there is a difference between doing this in relationship with someone and doing it in a situation like these poor boys were with Antiochus IV and Epiphanes, where there is no dialogue going to happen, right? Where they're simply going to have to speak truth to power. And that's when you simply lay your body and your life on the line and say, 
take it. You have no power over me. I remember my train of thought before. Um, I think with humility, I, I, I see it. It's difficult, you know, because we've come across that even with um, people we've interacted closely when we start to share what we are coming to learn and understand it's it is perceived as you no longer trust what we've taught you you no longer believe what we've instilled in you and that brings a lot of almost this fear possibly or even this train of thought of then then what is truth if what you're now questioning that we've taught was so right all these years, then what else have potentially is gonna end up having to have an internal look of what else do I believe that could be not right or different. And I think that requires humility, which is why some people may not explore that because it, it, it does shake your, your world. It, you, what you have been taught to believe was truth in God is now possibly you are taking it a step further in in growing in an understanding their their view is very black or white of like I've been taught wrong so it goes back to the the idol of certainty so it's easier for me to say nope I choose not to hear or want to believe anything that you are learning because then that's going to make me question what I've been taught and that's too scary for people so I think it goes back to humility it's a hard it's a hard place to be because then potentially you're going to have to reevaluate your beliefs that you held so dearly so and back to Woody's question of how to speak humbly with people without making it true or right Ellen is always a teaching I, I always forget the Bible verse of always be ready to give the reason for the hope, but she's always taught it of like, but people want to skip out that next sentence when asked. And so, <laughs> and, and so I think that that could be added as some, a way to speak humbly with people is, do they ask or not? Because we're so quick to want to give people answers when they're not ready or when they're not asking us. And I think that is one way of being humble of, if that person hasn't asked, then they're not ready and we shouldn't have that conversation. Yeah. Um, even to share what you are growing and learning, because to me that that would be unkind. That would be back to Donna's comment about relationship. Once there's you know the relationship there and the investment, the questions and the engagement and back and forth, respectful and humble conversation most likely will come. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my one of my my former pastors, um, Presbyterian gave a sermon one time on evangelism and he said now I know that most of you are heading for the doors mentally as soon as the word evangelism came out of my mouth because you come up with these visions of of you know teenagers storming the mall and sharing the four spiritual laws you know dating myself you know in terms of that sort of thing but the whole idea of buttonholing strangers and saying if you died today are you certain where you would go and that sort of thing um which is very off-putting for most people, including Christians like myself. Um, and he said, evangelism is, as we've talked about here, is sharing the good news, not browbeating people or causing them to be afraid, 
but he said, what's most important is building relationship and evangelism should be asking questions and telling stories. Because yeah. he said, you can share your own personal story, but you have to elicit the story of the person that you're talking with in order to understand where they are, what their needs are, and how your story can can resonate with that. Yes, and we need to stop because we're over time, but I want to leave you with words attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, who is who said, preach, and if necessary, use words. I was just thinking of that same line. <laughs> That's what we're talking about. I love you all, and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. <laughs>